Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Season 8 of Game of Thrones begins this Sunday, which means binge mode Game of Thrones makes its long-awaited return, with your resident experts Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion guiding you through each episode. And to get your fix every Sunday night, Chris Ryan joins Mallory and Jason on Talk the Thrones, a Twitter after show recapping each episode throughout the season. So make sure you check out the Binge Mode podcast on Apple or Spotify, Talk the Thrones on Twitter, and for even more Thrones coverage, you can head to theringer.com. Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Today's guest is the great skateboarder Eric Costin. We recorded this during South by Southwest. This is the last part of the trilogy with Uber Eats, with Ty Haney of Outdoor Voices, Aaron Franklin of Franklin Barbecue, and now the great skateboarder Eric Costin. I've known Eric for a while now. Uh, we were introduced by Jesse Leva, who was running Nike SB, Nike Skateboarding. And you're going to hear Jesse's name a bunch. So if we drop the name Jesse, it's in regards to Jesse, who's now started his own business and firm. And he was with Nike for like 20 years. And one of the most iconic, most important people in sneakerhead culture, if you are into such things. Eric is widely considered one of the greatest, best skateboarders of all time, specifically one of the top street skaters. Street skating, as I understand, is more informal and improvisational versus the vert ramp skater who are more high-flying and all about doing the biggest tricks. Think about Tony Hawk versus what Eric Hostin does. Maybe there's some equivalent in food where street skating is more like this pure kind of delicious base cooking and vert skating is like old-school fine dining or whatever. I, I don't really know because the funny thing is, is I don't skateboard, not a surprise. I tried it once, almost cracked my head open. But I'm not here to talk about actual skating. I'm here because not only am I friends with Eric, and he's a great sort of dining companion. I wanted him to come to South by Southwest because I wanted to get some insight into how skateboard culture can give us some insights to the culinary profession. I can imagine whoever's listening being like, okay, Dave, it was a stretch to talk about football and the run-pass offense, uh, basketball and efficiency rating in three-point shots, and maybe even art with Jerry Saltz. This is a stretch. And I can totally empathize and understand that this is a total stretch. But I'm going to get a little bit esoteric here because it's something I learned in college that I continue to apply in almost everything in life. So I was a religion major, and one of the things I learned from Howard DeLong, so I did a lot of comparative religion, but really about the philosophy of religion, why people were religious. And Howard DeLong was um, someone that is really important in my life, and he took logic classes and a bunch of other things. I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole about a professor that none of you guys will ever know or read about. But he impressed upon me the idea when studying a religion, don't study the ancient ones first. You should really deep dive into the modern religions, the religions over the past, say, 100 years where you can see the birth and sort of follow and trace to present day. And the human condition, the human nature of things doesn't really change. So you, if you can understand how a religion evolved over time, within modern time, and we have 
definitive evidence and documents and TV and tape recordings of how these things happen, it might give you, and not just might, I think it definitely gives you better insight if you're trying to understand the Dead Sea Scrolls or Buddhism or Hinduism or how religion spread couple millennia ago where you don't have access to information to verify certain things. So if you can find that pattern, I found it to be incredibly helpful in cooking, believe it or not. And as this podcast, particularly in 2019, we've gone down this rabbit hole of trying to find more and more analogies, metaphors, and parallels that are outside the culinary industry. I've always long admired the skateboard industry because I think that the culture of skateboarding and those that have made it into this sort of not just a great business, but quite frankly, a sport and art form that is beautiful. And you've seen it in like Mind the Gap and the that was nominated for Best Documentary and Jonah Hill created a great movie called uh, the uh, mid-90s. Uh, highly recommend you guys to check those out if you haven't. Uh, gives you an insight in terms of like suburban life and what it means to express yourself on a skateboard and to be an outsider. And for a long time, while skateboarding may seem to be sort of mainstream almost these days because of the X Games and the commercialization of it, it's still full of people that were iconic, not just in skateboard culture, but I think that they were instrumental in changing how we view things, right? It's sort of trickled down so much of fashion, so much of how we market, so much of how we think about changing a sport in terms of the tricks and all of it, right? Like, that's the stuff that really fascinates me. And the history of skateboarding is probably, what, 50 years old, tops, right? Like, I don't know, maybe maybe a little bit longer, but it becoming a relatively significant part of American culture is relatively young. And you can go back pretty, like, 1950s or so and accurately sketch out and see the evolution of where we are today, which is, again, a big business. And it's had the ebbs and flows where it's been very popular and it's been very unpopular. And skateboarding to me has always embraced the outsider culture, right? Sort of the alternative to whatever is mainstream. Yet they continue to have a rabid fan base and they're able to communicate with their fans now with social media. But the funny thing is, is skateboarding the messaging and the culture of it cross-pollinated in ways that I still don't quite understand because there were no websites and social media. It was through like skateboarding magazines and just word of mouth. And it's always maintained that, in my opinion, I could be wrong, but I wanted to talk to Eric Costin. So I've known him for a while, again, through Jesse. He's a great hang. And Besides trying to make some parallels to food and skateboarding, I think that as a skateboarder itself, there's a lot of things that we as chefs and cooks in culinary arts can learn from because historically skateboarding was for the young. You peaked at a young age and who knew what happened, right? If you washed out at the mid-20s, I don't know if you continue to skateboard. How do you maintain a career if you're supposed to be over at age 25 or so? And what's fascinating about Eric is now that he's in his 40s, he's maintained excellence and he's gotten older and he's more mature. He's the wily veteran. But along the way, outside of skateboarding, he's created several businesses. He's an entrepreneur. He's uh, got a great sense of fashion and style. And he's evolved and he's become this iconic figure in skateboarding. And I find that to be incredibly admirable and something that I want to get to know better and how it all happened. Because in the culinary world, for America at least, 
the popularity of it is probably way shorter, right? Like only recently in 2019 do I feel like cooking is widely accepted and people are younger, know more about food than ever before. But as cooks, I'm 41, I'm turning 42 in August. And again, I'm feeling my age. I don't think that I'm old, but again, I used to think that this was too old and it's something I wrestled with a long time about your relevance in this profession because we don't know still what happens when your body is sort of completely broken and you are later in life and you can't work the line anymore. And not everyone is going to be successful. Not everyone is going to be able to have their own restaurant. What do you do and how do you carve out your life in the culinary arts? And I think we need to be more honest about what's available to better serve the problems in this profession. And when I find someone like Eric Costin or Tony Hawk in a profession like skateboarding, and they're still relevant and they're still at the top of their field, that's something we need to look at. That's something we need to learn more about. Because if we can apply some of those things that they've learned into our profession, not only can we lengthen our careers, we might be able to better financially prepare for when we can't cook anymore, so on and so forth. And that's all, is our industry is still too young. And I continue to try to look at what else is out there. So that was my big speech. (sighs) Didn't mean to go on such a rant, but I hope you listen to this. Let me just give you another warning. The audio, again, was sort of wonky. We were recording in Uber Eats' house, so... Isaac Lee, our producer at The Ringer, is not happy because it's not ideal. So apologies because we had some not perfect environment to have crystal clear audio on the recording. We had outsourced it with someone locally in Austin and it just wound up not being perfect. So apologies. I know how much a pain in the ass that can be for people listening. And secondly... Eric and I, I just didn't go to bed the night before. I had just arrived the night before. I hadn't been sleeping at all because of the birth of my son. And I had sort of the the day to get to Austin and do this podcast, the third one. And when I landed, I chose not to go out to meet up with Jesse and Eric. And it chose to be maybe the best decision I've ever made because they went out, they stayed out till like crazy late and they wound up just having fun. And we just were trying to like, catch our breath, quite frankly, when the podcast started. So if you really don't want to hear rambling on about going out and an incoherent night out with Eric Hostin, Sean Balto, great skateboarder, Blake Anderson, the comedian from Workaholics and a few other things, and the Blackouts, the DJs that played music for us that night, and they're, they're amazing, they went out. I chose not to. If you don't want to hear that, you should just skip 30 minutes in because there's almost no need. But I found it to be funny to hear Eric go on and on and on about what was essentially a random out in South by Southwest. And if you haven't been to South by Southwest, it's essentially like the craziest party for like two weeks. And, um, you know, I've always been curious to what the fuck does a skateboarder actually do when they're not skating? I know they're eating because they're great at picking out eating spots wherever they are in the world. So that's a big tip. Follow where the skateboarders go because they know where things are delicious and affordable. So if you don't want to hear about any of that stuff, just skip through the first 30 minutes. And then we can get into sort of the meat of his career, how he got to where he is. And again, I'm not talking about tricks. I'm not talking about skateboard philosophy 
per se. Like, there's enough of that shit out there, I think. I really wanted to know, like, his thought process and survival and what's next for Eric Costin. Uh, I have talked way too much. I will shut the fuck up. Here is Eric Costin. So what happened last night? Uh, so you got in yesterday? Yesterday. Got in. Pretty much came here to this Uber Eats event space. Roy, Roy Choi was Choi doing Choi something with Aaron Dan. Franklin. Yeah. And yeah, had tacos. Really good. And then? And then... Uh, I think this isn't fascinating because this is a day in the life of Eric Costin, who travels the world over and... and, and experiences the world i did yeah that's <laughs> true i mean yeah this is one of those things where, like, more exciting hell, you know what the hell am i doing yeah here in south by southwest aside from my dg allen cover band <laughs> performing a hole in the wall venue really no that would be amazing <laughs> that would be amazing no no here this yeah and yeah but i've never i've never gone to south by southwest uh, actually i've been to austin plenty of times but uh not for this Plenty of times for skateboarding tournaments and stuff? Not even tournaments. Oh, there was one. There was actually one one competition here back in the day that MTV did. uh, That was, it was like kind of on the heels of like the the, the popularity of the X Games. It's only a few years after it started, but then MTV wanted to do one called MTV Sports and Music Festival. And there was a skateboarding event. And they had a contest. Yeah, skate contest. They really, they wanted to like, for the street contest, there was a vert, a vert contest and a street contest. For those of you, vert is the U-pipe shape ramp. And then street was, you know, simulated, simulated street spots. But they actually had like a kind of Universal Studio backlot type of setting too. Like a real, like this sort of city. And uh, they kind of tried to make it very real. <laughs> real to the streets, I guess, you know, I, I guess the effort was there, you know, the, the execution was really poor, but they actually tried, which was kind of cool. Okay. But Austin as a city is a good skateboarding city? Yeah. Why? Yeah. There's good street spots. I mean, it's a good skate park right here, pretty much in downtown. Did you go skateboarding today? I did yesterday, sort of skated for like five minutes. Does that count? <laughs> it counts. That counts. Yeah. It's five second rule. Yeah, exactly. Um, but back to what, what but, they but do. We're going back like, to like, the yeah, reason like, why. Right so like I, uh, I got a text message um, from Jesse and yes. I saw you across, the, it was a photo of you across the street talking to some dudes and they're like, hey, meet us at um, Empire. 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 And like I just Jaeger, landed. Jaeger. I'd like to thank Jägermeister USA for... Uh, I can't promote him, but no, you no, can. I, you can. I guess I, I can. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, yeah, so it was like a, a it's Jaeger, right Jaeger like event. 11 so o'clock, and then I, I was like, yeah, I got to catch up with Austin, see Jesse, see all these people. And then I was like, fuck, I haven't eaten anything. And so I, I got a bite to eat, took a shower, ready to go. And then I thought twice. Yeah. Because then it dawned on me. I was like, oh. I have a huge day today. Yeah. You thought, right. Something's going to happen. I should have been thinking the way you were thinking. And I. So what happened? Post 1130. We just, yeah, we just stayed there. There was a, just a lot of uh, drink tickets. <laughs> because my friend Atiba, who will be, who's one half of the blackouts, his twin brother, they'll be DJing. 
here tonight. I'd like to thank the blackouts. <laughs> you like Shout that? out to the blackouts. Shout out to the blackouts. Akko and Atiba. So Atiba was, he was actually doing the takeover for Jaeger on their, their Instagram. And so that's what he was over there. We met him over there and we just kind of, yeah, we had plenty of drink tickets and that's kind of how it started. Then it ended and we were trying but to Are you drinking it. Jaeger shots and beer? I only did a couple Jaeger shots because I know where that really goes. So I was, I was trying to keep it together actually because I knew this I was going to come here and do this and I didn't want to be like a complete pile of shit <laughs> and that backfired. But I, yeah, I only did a couple, but then we went, we left that event. The event closed down. We just went down 6th Street and we found a bar that was like uh, the Jackalope. It's like just a, pretty much a tourist trap, you know, of a bar. And um, we go in and uh, a bartender recognizes myself. I was with Sean Malto, another professional skateboarder. Saw him. Saw Blake Anderson, workaholics. He just, he's just kind of tripping out. Like, what are you guys doing? What you know? Why did so you guys like, just yeah. walk in here? So he just starts feeding. It's like shots. El Nino happening <laughs> in this bar. Yeah, because it was kind of like it's really loud music, but there's like at that point it was really you know about a dozen people there. Everyone was probably finished by then, you know. And it was getting to that point where around two o'clock where it's closing. <laughs> so, but he starts like I'm making you guys shots, and he starts making this like sake bomb. He calls it. It was made with sake, something else. It was pretty like, pretty light, you know. It wasn't super sweet. It was a, actually a really good shot, but it was a shot. And that led into beers. I've gone out drinking yeah. with you. Drinking beer with you is an excellent hang. Yeah, beers are Modelo. Modelo's love Modelo. Like saying Modelo. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no Modelo's. I love Modelo's. Yes, they're the. But there were no Modellas. What are you drinking? Lone Star. Lone Star. Yeah. The Texas, the beer. Yeah, and Tall Boys. Can we we have a conversation about Tall Boys? Let's talk about Tall Boys. Divergent conversation about the day in the life, the night of the life of Eric Costin. Mm -hmm. What is the point of a Tall Boy? I love it like eight ounce cans. Yeah. I want it cold. I want it cold. Yeah. What's the point? I don't know. Who likes a Tall Boy? But I guess it's, it's more bang for your buck. And some will say, you know, if it's getting warm, which is, that's my problem. That's the flaw on a tall boy. By like the, the last quarter of it is all warm. And, and I don't want to drink in a koozie. Nasty. No. Yeah. And, and you got to, you know, or you got to bring a koozie, but that's, I mean, reality is like, if it's getting warm, you're not drinking it fast enough, really. <laughs> I guess. I, again, <laughs> I, I want to know if anyone has information about the creator of the tall boy, I want to fucking know. <laughs> because... It's not like getting a extra French fries at like yeah. McDonald's or something. This is like, yeah. I mean, ponies to me should be the the, the bottle size of choice, eight six to eight ounces. Yeah, exactly. It's cold and good. I don't know. Do you think other people have the same problem with a tall boy? I want to know if someone. This is one of yes. those things. If someone actually <laughs> likes a tall boy, that's an interesting conversation. Yeah. I want to know what that point of view is. I'm sure just because they make a lot of them. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Everybody maybe more it. bang for your buck. It's more Have I drunk in a lot of tall boys in my life? 100%. Yes. But I, the worst part of the beer is the warm. Yeah, the bottle. And I feel like maybe a wimp because like, someone's like, you should just drink it faster. <laughs> yeah. True? True. 
Okay. So anyway, so back so to the that. reason back to the tall boys in this bar. <laughs> you were leaving. I, you said something. Oh today. yes, you're leaving. Yeah, we're grenades. leaving. We're leaving and going back to the hotel and the bar. No, but you're leaving bars. Uh, you're drinking oh. a lot of tall boys, but you're leaving them like half full. Yes, right? exactly. I, I thought like, that was the most good. fascinating bit of information I gleaned all day. Especially exactly. when they're free and you got drink tickets. It's like okay, well, I'll just drink the. I'll drink the 12 ounces, and then when you hit that, yeah, just seems like a there. waste. But if you are a beer drinker, yeah, it was a smart move. Yeah, exactly. I was enjoying it. Yeah, it was more about savoring it, right? And then you leave the bar. Leave the bar. Then go where? The hotel. Uh, you don't say the name of the hotel. You're yeah. staying at this hotel. But but when we leave the bar, the my new bartender friend from the uh, the, the Jackalope was it Jackalope? Yeah. No, doesn't, doesn't matter. Is it Jackalope? What did I call the thing? Yeah, it's Jackalope. Um, he shoves like a giant bottle of uh, sake into my hoodie pocket, pouch pocket in the front. It could be the Jackalope. It could be another bar. Could be somewhere. Could be somewhere. Yeah. His memory's foggy. Yeah. We don't really know if it was the Jackalope. It could be a number of bars in the Austin area. It's on 6th Street, that's for sure. <laughs> um. So yeah, so you have a bottle of sake in your bottle. Yeah, Yeah. and so then, how many beers now do you think you consumed? I I think the world of Eric Costin fans want to know. Do they really? Yeah, I think I want to know. I think they want to, including so two two numbers here. One is the number of total cans versus the actual amount. Yeah, total cans versus the actual because that's the thing. I none of them I finished. I was that dude. So how many soldiers all over the place? Uh, North of 12? Let's see. Because I had one. No, not 12. I don't think about I think maybe around close to that, maybe <laughs> 10 to 12. <laughs> 10 yeah. to 12-ish. Maybe. And you probably but drank half of each one. So you had yeah. six beers. Yeah. And then you had a bun- couple shots. Yeah. And now you have a bottle of sake headed back to the hotel. With Atiba, Malto, and then Blake Anderson. <laughs> and then what and happens? He was... We go back to Atiba's room and then we start we're drinking the sake. Just passing around a bottle of sake. Why? <laughs> really terrible idea. But that's the point. That's that point where you're like, ah, oh, it's just whatever. And we're already at the like hotel. Four, I'm go four to in the morning? It's two because the bar's closed All at right. two. So it's after two. And then but Blake was pretty good. He was real good. And so he was he was just wrestling with us. So we had to like he was wrestling. he just wanted to wrestle. It was pretty uh so you have Four a, dudes wrestling in a hotel room. It's but that was the night. It ended with wrestling. Yeah, like well, trying to keep him down. Blake's pretty. He's pretty ripped, actually. He like works out and shit. Are you guys buff. like? Are you, <laughs> he's like fucking buff and like we. But, but you guys are professional athletes. <laughs> yeah, we we took him down. We got him. But so what kind still, of wrestling has, is this? Is this like grabbing, just grappling? I don't know. Mixed martial <laughs> arts, I guess. Who was the best wrestler of the bunch, Blake? No, no. I, I mean, I spent most of it laughing. And Atiba, because he kept going after Atiba, Atiba actually put him down. And you guys huffing and puffing, you're pretty tired. Wrestling yeah, is a... t- t- tired wrestling. And then, yeah, that was it. And then my off switch kicked in. And then you're in bed. Yeah. And then this morning, Jesse was like, we got to get Veracruz tacos. Mm-hmm. We were supposed to meet up. But you were still in bed. Yes. And then you finally met us after we ordered way too many tacos around 11 o'clock. Did you order 26 tacos? We ordered 24 tacos. 24. 
18 egg potato chorizo tacos, two more of those with cheese, four migas. So that's 24 and one quesadilla with um, I had that quesadilla. The, 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 the pastor. Yeah. Oof. Of all the delicious things. And by the way, they must have sent at least 20 more tacos. I think so. Because we only ordered 24 tacos. That pastor quesadilla was really good. And I heard a terrible like news that they are forced to move. Did you know this? Veracruz yeah. has to move because of the rent or something on the land. Oh, the land. The land that makes itself. sense. But they can move. They can move. They are in a bus. The most important thing I learned today was the fact that the pastor quesadilla is maybe the secret jewel of the whole menu. Yeah. I mean, I know the migas is like the, so the good. hit, but it was really good. Very that, good. That, that, that quesadilla, it was just sitting in its own grease too. It was perfect. Perfect that base. Pool that, of base grease. that base coat was yeah. that kind of helped. I me. thought that was going to be very, very powerful and like medicinal for you. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was. It helped. <laughs> So it's like, fuck, it's almost six o'clock. I, I got to help cook this dinner tonight. And you're here and I'm still full for eating this. And that gives us to present day where we're at. Yep. So if he's sounding a little under the weather, it's because he had a, a, a fun night. This yeah. is, was this a typical um, night of a professional skateboarder? Hung fat. Is it a typical night? No. I, I mean, well, I think honestly, it can be. What people are concerned, I want people so, to know is like, what the fuck do you guys do other than skate? Because it seems to me that the whole life of a, a skateboarder yeah. is maybe just the, a, one big the dream. Yeah. I mean, it can be for some guys, for sure. It was for you for a while. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I have a family, I have a wife and two kids, that, you know, a seven and a nine year old. So it can't be like that. I mean, I'm here in, at South by Southwest, yeah, with friends. Really quickly, and I'm out tomorrow morning, 7 a.m. But like, so yeah, I'm gonna have some fun. But yes, I can't do that. I don't do that at home. <laughs> but, like, but, but like, but yes, a skateboarder can do that. But what do they do? They, what do you do? What do you, they, what, first of all, let's they go don't back. have all that stuff. The family and the and so business. when you're a, a single dude mm-hmm. going town to town to town, this is what I would imagine is a normal night, right? Yeah, kind of was. Yeah. For the most part, not, it wouldn't be every night, but the younger you are, the, the easier it is to bounce back in the morning, you know, go skate, skate a contest. I've done it. I've, Have you I've, won I've, contests? Yes. That's amazing. I've won an X game so of, of nuclear hangover. You gotta hear these stories, man. I know. You know, it's it was, like David Wells being blacked out drunk and throwing a perfect game. Yeah. But my friend, Aaron, his wedding, it was up in SF, which was on a Saturday. And then the next day was the next games. In LA. So did his wedding, did the, you know, wedding party, hanging with his dad and his dad's like best friend. And we're drinking like a really, a really nice tequila. I don't even remember the name of it. Three of us just drinking out of the bottle. At this moment, are you like, I have a competition tomorrow? (laughs) I had to get up at like 6am, fly back down to LA, you know, it's our flight, but back to LA, like get some breakfast, pull my shit together and go skate a contest. Like skate the X Games. Can we... What year? So we can look at YouTube and and Uh, see this footage. I don't know, like a 2000, maybe three, four. And you're feeling like total ass. Yeah. Yeah. Were you shocked that you won it? Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised I could like skate. I was really, yeah. I was really surprised I could actually do tricks and land them and stuff consistently. 
Which again, but sometimes it just, yeah, it happens, you know, but I don't recommend that by any means, but yes. It, it, but you have been in the industry long enough where you've seen multiple generations and ebbs and flows in mm-hmm. the interest and popularity of skateboarding. Yeah. From the very high of the high to the low of the lows. Yes. And I'm mostly fascinated about the lifestyle you guys live. Because I'm not a skateboarder, right? Yeah. But I appreciate the lifestyle and the and the way you guys look at culture and can mix and match and take from whatever and call it your own because it's always been on the outside looking in yeah. a little bit. And it's your own counterculture. And I love that shit. Yeah. And I want I would just was like, man, like I bet you other people would want to know what that lifestyle is like because you've told me a couple of times, when did you turn pro? In uh, 1991. You were how old? 16. When did you know you were better than everyone else? Pretty early on? And how long you I mean, I had, like, no, I didn't when you were like, that age? Well, like, when I turned pro, I didn't even want to turn pro when I turned pro. Why? It's just kind of an interesting situation. The sponsor that I was with, was a company uh, called H Street. That was my first board sponsor. And H Street, there was, it was a huge team. And one of the guys that ran the company and this guy, Mike Ternaski cherry picked like the cream of the crop from them from H street to start his own company called plan B. And he, I was at this contest also with the, my friend, Eddie Olguera, who was the one who helped me get sponsored by H street. He skated for H street as well. We were at this contest in San Francisco, which was a pro contest, but I had been skating these amateur contests. But back in the day, you, if you did well in amateur contests, you're kind of ready to make that next step. It was actually competition that, which, sent you to the sort of the next level. And how did you find and, out about these competitions? Like what, oh, there's no just, internet. Well, they were, it's just known. Yeah, I guess it's how is, it is always known. There'd be a schedule because like uh, the people that sanctioned the events would have us, you know, a full year schedule of like which contests are where. I guess, what? how did we know? I don't, yeah, mail, like magazines, phone calls. <laughs> and, and then you'd been skateboarding for how many years then? We started how early? 86. Wow. So you were what? Yeah, I've been skating for five years, I guess, yeah. Right. And who introduced you to skateboarding? My, my brother, my older brother. He, he, him and his friends. And were you immediately better than them? I wanted to, yeah, I just wanted to do what they were doing because it looked like fun. It took a minute to like get things figured out and get sort of comfortable. But, and then I started, then... He kind of got out of skating. And so I started skating with like older friends, guys that were like 15, 16 when I was like 11 and 12 ish, you know, like older dudes, dudes that had car, could drive and had cars and were better. So I think, you know, I, was, I skated with older guys that were good and like to me, you know, in my eyes. And I think that maybe helped me sort of force to grow up. Yeah, to keep up. I had to like keep up and. and- Around the, the late 80s or so, where is skating in, in national popularity, global popularity? Is it at a peak or is it at, on one of the downturns? When I started? Yeah. Oh, it was huge. The mid-80s was pretty big. Because this is the Power Peralta era? Power Peralta, Vision. All the guys from that time, yeah, were, they were huge. They were, like, they were like superstars. And there weren't as many pros. Like now, there's hundreds and hundreds, thousands Back then, there was the top elite guys or like, it was like 30 or something. 
it was huge. Was Do you look super, back super at the, the 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 sort of the the forefathers of your profession as like they could have done what you what's current day like tricks and stuff like that, or is it just is it like watching mm-hmm. old school football or old school basketball? You're like that's cool, but man, like yeah. Um, no, I mean there still are guys that that I did look up to, like Mark Gonzalez. He's one who still can do things that are really unique. And I mean, he, in my eyes, is like the guy who really like took street skating to this, you know, completely other level just because of how creative he was. And he's still around, you know, Tony Hawk, another guy still ripping. So it, I mean, yes, they're older. I'm older. You know, it's, it is, I guess in some ways, not quite like watching like old school basketball, but I guess to some degree, yeah, similar to that. But it's still, it's weird because they're, you know, they're still doing it. Right. Or you really well. And you didn't think, we didn't think when we were younger. I think those guys also didn't think when they were younger. They they thought, you know, like in their mid 20s, are done. That used to be the thing. It was but just, why was it always the mid 20s and you're done? Well, because you would see guys that work really good pros kind of disappear. They kind of just thought that, like, oh, you know, they see somebody else that's. Is it like a, a little gym- bit better? And they felt like, oh, that's it. I'm gonna, I'm done. So back then, was it sort of like being a gymnast? Like gymnasts, ha- like their careers over at like 25. Yeah, exactly. Right. It was exactly like that. So you started in the the peak of skateboarding, and if you're going to look at skateboarding in eras, mm-hmm. that is one of the most important times for skateboarding, right? That's when it got yeah. critical mass, right? Yeah. And skateboarders are starting their own companies. Yeah, a lot of a lot of those guys, they were all with these huge brands. And then late 80s, early 90s is right when it bottomed out pretty hard. And those guys, they left their sponsors, they started their own companies, they thought like, or they were just they just left, you know, or just got a, a job doing something else, you know, outside of skateboarding, they just left. Maybe they still skated, but they were like, I, oh, you know, I can't do this as a job anymore. This is not a career anymore. I'm too old. Right. So then, yeah, a lot of those guys started breaking off. Pal Peralta started to, you know, crumble. That was like a huge thing, you know, huge, huge brand. And it's like all these guys left, started their own own companies. So it's and, creation, and destruction, it was, creation, destruction. Yeah. So the mid '90s era, the '90s is considered what in skateboarding then? <sighs> back now, <laughs> it's very back. Uh, a lot happened in the '90s. But in popularity, it was... It was super low. It went from really bad, you know? Like, nobody... We so you wore the pro- craziest gear. Like, we looked like ravers, you know? And, like, at the peak of, like, the rave era. Yeah, and you started, became a pro at the, at the, like, the lowest level. When it started to get real low. Very low. That's and, cool. Yeah. No one can say that. No, mo- like, no money, but... You know, I was like making some money, so I, don't, I was like, "Great, I don't care." This and, is awesome. And <laughs> when you turn pro at sixteen, then in the in the nineties, what's your lifestyle then? Like, are you are you living at home? Or are you on the road all the time? I ended up like moving into H Street had this house where like a, a lot of the riders they all lived at. There was a room there, and I moved into that place. Interesting, because I wanted to skate and film. They're doing a video. That's what a lot of things you know skaters do. They do the film video parts too. That's another way to sort of, you know, promote yourself. It's more of like a highlight reel. And it's competition too, right? And then there's competition. But the video itself is competition, right? Because you're trying to... Sh- you, 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 it's a, yeah, it's a personal one. Usually, because you're always trying to do stuff that you haven't done before. 
you know, and are you finding your film, you style to... now, like right around this time? And you, when you're, you're what, 18, 19, 20, are, are you like, this is how I'm going to do it? Yeah. Also, the, the types of tricks, it went through different eras and stuff. It, it's like, now it's not like that. Now you can, people can go back and pull from sort of this catalog of the past and skate a specific way. And you'll see the influence of somebody from some certain era. But I went through it all where you're, yeah, like skating slow, small wheels, really technical, horrible looking tricks that was just, you were just trying to do the hardest trick possible. You didn't care how it looked. So then it like that started to, everyone started to skate a little bit faster and those tricks are started to clean themselves up and you want to do them higher and smoother and catch them. And, and the most technical thing wasn't the most, it doesn't mean it's the best thing because hmm. it could look like shit. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's an amazing trick. But if a guy's like does it horribly, it, you know, it's very subjective, but you have your own taste. And if you see something that's gross, you're like, ew, right. I, I, ew, I, it's cool trick. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Brilliant Earth is the global leader in ethically sourced fine jewelry. Create your own custom engagement ring right on their website by picking from a variety of ethically sourced diamonds, gemstones, metal types, and settings. Brilliant Earth also offers wedding rings, vintage pieces, and many other handcrafted jewelry items with exclusive unique designs you can't find anywhere else. Brilliant Earth is passionate about cultivating a more transparent, sustainable, and compassionate jewelry industry. They go above and beyond the current industry standards to offer beyond conflict-free diamonds, along with fine jewelry crafted from recycled precious metals. They even donate 5% of profits to help build a brighter future in communities impacted by the jewelry industry. Outstanding and highly personalized customer service is the hallmark of the Brilliant Earth shopping experience. I wish I had Brilliant Earth when I was searching for an engagement ring. would have made a very stressful experience way easier and manageable. To make your Brilliant Earth purchasing experience as stress-free as possible, they offer free shipping and returns on all U.S., U.K., and Canadian orders. To enjoy free shipping and returns on any of Brilliant Earth's fine jewelry selections, just visit BrilliantEarth.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. That's BrilliantEarth.com slash Chang. And now, back to the show. So tricks were still being discovered. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Everything seemed possible. Yeah. You didn't know what still, was good yeah. In the early nineties, there's tricks still like getting invented, you know, like, or combinations too. A lot of it was more or less combinations at that point. So uh, just the, like technical tricks mixed, you know, slides and grinds and whatnot. Huh. And same with on, on vert guys are flipping their boards more. They took street to vert. So as a skater, do you have to choose between street mm. and vert? Around no, time? I mean, you kind of do just based on what's accessible to you. I, when I grew up skating, like in the 80s, you, you did everything. So you just skated. And you didn't really like kind of, I'm a street skater or I'm a vert skater. But And eventually you guys, people started to choose their paths of what their, you know, they their, their forte is. But I grew up in a time where, yeah, you did it all. Is that so sort I of did, like- I, you know, I used to skate vert a lot. But then street skating just became more of this, the thing. And I just didn't. You don't have a vert ramp nearby you, then how are you going to skate vert? Is this sort of like how today when we played sports as kids, you played everything, mm-hmm. right? And now when I see like my niece or nephews, they only play one sport. Yeah. You get so focused pretty early on. Yeah. I don't know if that's fucking applicable. But now now in the late 90s, 
skating gets popular again, right? And you're now yeah, riding X the Games wave. starts. They jump in. That sort of. What do you think of X Games? What do you think of the first X Games when it happened? I didn't actually go to the first one. I saw. I, uh, I remember hearing about it, and I was like, "What the fuck is this?" <laughs> like, no, nah, I'm not going to that. And then I saw, you know, photos and footage from it. It's like, holy shit, that looked pretty harsh. And so I'm like, but fuck it, I'm going to go to the next one. And I went to the next one. <laughs> and the X Games. And <laughs> it, it was like, it was just like, whoa. Because you're just mixing it all together. Here's action sports and we're all this, you know, and, and it's just this big shit show of like a, like a kind of, you know, it's like a music festival, but it's instead of it's just all these extreme sports, right? So it's, I guess as a, as a skater, we're like, we're not like those other dudes that are right. doing whatever else it is, you know, we're like, we're skaters. So we, I guess there was some skepticism of like, yeah, and it's ESPN. Is it like you know, it's mainstream. Out? Yeah. It, it felt sellout-ish. You know, yeah. All sorts of things. Yeah. You're doing something for ESPN. They never did anything for skating. You know, it's, it's just all us as skaters are always like protective. When did it switch? When did it be like, this is good for our industry? When did it switch? When people that didn't skate were, were buying into the lifestyle, just like surfing. That was supporting us, you know, we're making money from people that don't skate. And it's like the cap is only so much with your core skate customer for guys that like make a living off of skateboard. And we need people that want to just consume our our shit. Yeah, exactly. And so that brought it to the average Joe on his couch, you know, in prime time, like sports television time, you know, when people are sitting on a couch and then also Tony Hawk's game. Huh. That game was fucking awesome. That also, those two things, I think, at that point, really, then anybody could skate because right. they just did their hands and they learned, they learned all the tricks. They knew the vocabulary. They didn't skate at all. Did you play the game? Yeah, I, I played it. The second one was definitely like my favorite, but I, I wasn't super into video games. Mm. So the year 2000, how old are you now? 20, years 20 yeah. Early so mid-20s, are yeah. you at like the peak Depends. of your powers that you develop your style and tricks that you've done and you have a ton of videos out and people are like, you're the fucking man by then. Yeah. Kind of. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I was in the game too. That helped <laughs> yeah, all that stuff. You know, it was like all that together. Yeah. It being in Tony's game, like winning some X games and uh, but at, at this uh, video time, like, parts and all that stuff. How competitive is it with I your had a peer group though? Because uh, that's what, always what was interesting to me how, was like the how do you remain friends in what is ultimately like a have and have not business? Yeah. You know, some people are competitive. Some like a lot of skaters aren't like that jealous or they hide it really well. I've always been, I want everybody to succeed. If I'm getting any sort of success, I want to, you know, I want to bring the crew and that's everybody I'm a part of. Yeah. And that is in general, obviously there's people that are selfish, but a lot of them are not. That's one of the things about skateboarding. It's like you do it with a crew of friends and that's a lot of, it's a lot of time spent together and all the stuff, not skating too. You know, you, these are your bros and you want to, you want them to have success just like. And you're I traveling do. around eating, drinking, going out to the bars the whole night. Yeah. Skating. And how are you guys keeping your, and skating, mostly skating. How are you guys keeping your heads on straight? Cause that seems like a lot. Yeah, we, a lot of we lost some. We lost some dudes, man. Like guys getting the drugs, they get 
Who t- you mean, how, do you train, and, and how do you get trained for that shit? You know, you, I mean? you like hopefully if you have friends around you that are helping you and get you through it, then guys can get through. I feel like, yeah, they have a right support group and get through it. You know, you got to know when to like, you can have fun, but you, ha- you got to also got to realize that's like, that doesn't last forever. I guess right. I always, have you always I always been, had that in the back of my you're head. You're always looking at skating next. too. Cause I like, that's how I've always approached. I'm like, this could go, this could go, this could be done. You know, I gotta, I could, so I gotta get ready for what it's like life after, but it just keeps going. So when you're in the <laughs> you mid twenties and you're reaching the age where you thought then the, like mm-hmm. 10 years before, yeah. this is when you're out of the business, you're still in it. Are yes. you like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah. Is this yeah, all yeah, surreal? Well, no, you're just like, oh, well, I'm going to, I need to create some opportunities that'll, that'll keep me in this for when I can't skate or when I'm not going to be pro, you know, I'm like, I love what I do. So I want to be a part of this industry for forever. So like you just start juggling shit and figuring out opportunities to keep you in it, you know, and that's where it went. Cause you always got to be ready. Cause I got to remember like that early nineties and, you know, made $300 a month. But I mean, I, got, I could live through that month with that. I made that work. Now you have a family to support. Yeah, but now you have a family to support. Now I got, now I got private school and shit. <laughs> Tuition. And is skating still like rising in popularity from the beginning of X Games? I think it still is. You know, it's it's Olympic it's, sport now. It's an Olympic sport. You know, it's like you know, some guys may hate it, some people may love it. It's going to the Olympics, which is crazy. It's pretty <laughs> funny, right? I think it's great, though. I don't. You know, some people think it's going to get, it's just going to be more commercial and blah, blah, blah. But, and it is, but that's the thing. It's, well, it's, at least it's growing. Right. And guys that don't want to be a part of that, at least they can hopefully survive and maybe, you know, some peripheral kickback from it, that, that popularity can let them keep it in the, their core way. They could survive. Right. It can help them, right. you know, even the guy that hates it. Now, <laughs> So with business changing and skateboarding (laughs) changing and continuing to grow and you figured out now how to build your own brand and business ventures, we don't have to get in all that shit. But like, as you got older, are are you like, wait, I'm worried about the younger competition there. Are you trying to always find relevance? Because like in my profession, I'm always looking at the younger generation being like, all right, I can still do this. They can do that. I can do this. I'm a little bit wiser. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely aware of the younger generation. You know, like better than ever before? Yeah. Why? Yes. Because they've seen it all. The different, you know, time. Is there There's anything- kids being born when I like, I landed a trick that they were like, you know, I, they seen years later, they're like born that year. You know, like I see now that are pro. You're like Dirk Nowitzki. Yeah, fully. Luka. Just, just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I was feeling like. like Dirk, right? Yeah, and I'm Dirk just lumbering up the court. <laughs> um, still got that three-pointer in my back pocket. But yeah. And do you think you're a better I, skater now than you were in your late 20s? Physically? Can you do things physically, still? Physically, no. What no, changed besides getting older? Like Just getting older. Like in your late 20s, that's when I, I see a lot of guys, like the guys that have been around for a while too, where they sort of the peak. It wasn't, you know, like these guys, that would, the pros when I looked up to and they're in their like early 20s or something, you know, it's like, now guys in their late 20s even 30 you know like i see what they actually really have their their maximum you know potential and power 
and skill. So sort of like the NBA, like you, most rookies need yeah. like four years. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's guys that are good and that you like, even now that are super young, but I'm like, they're still going to grow into like, they can keep it up. They stay healthy. Like D'Angelo Russell. To yeah. Me. Yeah. Numbskull that he is. Who would have thought, right? I mean, he was a Laker. I didn't think, I, I honestly didn't really see that he would, you, could you know, see. I could see that he could, but I didn't see it coming that fast. But I think going to Brooklyn, really, he had to jump into that driver's seat real quick. And, and is that the same way with skating that there's a, because I, I talk about this because as a cook, I'm always infatuated to my own neurosis about when are you at the peak of your powers. And I'm not saying like your most creative per se, but like there seems to be in many professions that are creative, a moment when you don't know enough but you believe you can do anything. And that's a fucking magical combination to try new shit out. Yeah. But now uh, as a wise old veteran, Mm -hmm. like, you know, too much shit. So it's hard to just do stupid shit all the time. Yeah. Yes. It's true. Yeah. And so I guess I still have, and I have the mentality is like, yeah, I already did that. You know, I want to try to do something else. So you still feel, you you know, I want to try something like I want to challenge myself. And how are you challenging yourself now in ways? Because now you're not inventing new tricks all the time now, are you? Are you trying to? Is there anything new to invent? Yeah, there's still. There is still. Yes. Because you can't say there is not. There's there's always something. But percentage-wise, it's going to be far less. It's far less because so many things have been done. Yes. It's more of just, like I said, the combinations of stuff. And now the things are getting done just bigger, longer, higher. So you're the crafty veteran. You're more Chris Paul today than Chris Paul on New Orleans. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I would so say step that. Step slower. Yeah. yeah. But IQ and you've seen every fucking angle and you can Yeah, just... exactly. Yeah, I've seen a lot, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> you, what, what, what's, I'm living just all the experience. What's given you the longevity? Because you, you're still <laughs> contributing to the skateboarding profession and culture in ways that many of your peers haven't, right? Like what gives you the yeah, advantage? So, that some would say, don't? yeah, um, maybe because of all what I've lived and all the experience. Is it because of paranoia too? Oh, probably, yeah. And what's around the corner is not good. Yeah, I guess keep working just in case you know the shit doesn't work out. <laughs> like, okay, and I, I, I want I, want, I could talk to you forever, and we've had sort of conversations like this over beers, but. I'm fascinated by this because weirdly enough, and I've talked to Jesse about this, the two very different things. And as I'm trying to compare everything to food, I think how the counterculture of skating has evolved and the ebb and flow of it over the years, there's gotta be something to learn from, from the culinary perspective, because for a long time, cooking was the least cool profession. It was like telling yeah. someone like I'm joining the army, you know, and people are like, what? what? <laughs> yeah. Like, what are you doing? That's the dumbest thing I could possibly hear. Mm-hmm. And then it's become cool. And very few people make it to the top. Very few people are able to make a, a, a good living out of it. You've had a lot yeah. of people that say, uh, I won't do that. That's a sellout. You know, mm-hmm. like 100% people are going to yeah. say, like, Dave, you're a fucking sellout. And I'm like, yeah, yeah I, I, yeah. Couldn't, I understand your point of view. I probably would have said the same thing yeah. at a similar point of view. And I have studied what's been going on in your profession because I was like, that's gotta be, that's very similar to me. Yeah. And all I want to do is I love the industry. I also hate it, but I also am mm-hmm. worried about what's going <laughs> to happen. And I just want to, when the music stops, I always want to make sure that I have a chair. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think that's, 
I think that's what kept me going. And how you but do it is, everything. It's so similar. Yeah, so I mean, you, similar. Because you're, you're, it's, a, it's a personal thing. But how you like guys. You're probably trying to figure out how to create some taste better. You know, how, what are you, you're thinking of something new, different. How do you make this better? But the way you guys, when I say you guys, skating culture and particularly professional skateboard culture, because you've been able to travel the fucking world and you see shit that mm-hmm. no one's seen at a really young age. And it's not like you're sitting at a desk working for the man. You're yeah. doing something amazing and it's fun. You're getting paid to do it. Yeah. You're expressing yourself. You're creating. Mm-hmm. You're having fun. You're learning. Like, yeah, that's a crazy way to view the world. And I think that all adds up to how you guys are able to market, how you guys are able to create a culture that's always like three, four steps ahead of the rest of the fucking world. Yeah. And how you guys see things. Yeah. Like when you guys were hosting that party last year and you guys showed me that, that crazy DeLorean uh, video. I don't remember. Remember that? Like you guys hosted some party and there was no fucking advertising about it whatsoever, but you knew it was going to be completely sold out and it was all text message. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. That. And you're telling me (laughs) this and I'm like, fucking genius of how you're explaining this, because you're not trying to promote to everyone. You're trying to promote directly to the people that care. Yeah. And I was like, that's a difficult thing for a lot of people to understand. And I feel like as a cook, as someone that's in this profession, I think that's a lot we can learn from because we're sometimes cooking for too many kinds of people. Mm -hmm. We just need to be cooking for the people that fucking care. Yeah. Like everyone thinks, and then that, yeah, fuck. Hopefully, fuck everybody them. else follows. Yeah. You know, if they don't. And if they don't, who gives a shit? Them. Yeah, exactly. Because like it's going to be cool again, and it won't be cool again. Yeah. But I gotta take care of my own. Yeah, and I want to do the things I want to do. Because if you do stuff to, for other people that you're not happy about doing it, you yeah, you you feel it. Right. You look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, ah. Uh, and no, I shouldn't have rode for that company for that money, but I did it. Ugh, I feel dirty. Yeah, I've done it. <laughs> you know, and it's. I've done stupid pitches for companies. And it's like, you can't lie to yourself. But you live and learn. And I think of anything that we can learn from, you know, it's very rare that you can see something in the world today, in my opinion, that you can see the beginning genesis of it and to current day and see the whole arc. Much like skaters today that are starting out can look at the whole vast array of tricks and pick and choose. Mm -hmm. Even if you're not a cook, it's, I think skating culture should be understood a little bit better because you guys have been so far ahead of the fucking curve. It's yeah. sort of weird. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't know if yeah, people will, you know, ever grasp that, but I don't, I don't, I think we just learned how to be self-sustainable, I guess, you know, but that's, that's all that matters. That's what we've, and especially the guys from that have gone through that have been around a while and kind of gone through the different eras of, of skating and seen it, you know? It makes us more resilient. Also, because we're, yeah, we're stubborn too. <laughs> you know, we're going to we'll like punish ourselves until we like get that satisfaction of landing a trick. But we'll you're not beat our bodies. Thinking about how to promote something so 100% of the population is going to like it. Yeah, yeah. And it's weird because I think a lot of, sometimes I feel like I'm guilty of this, but a lot of chefs and cooks that are opening up concepts, they're trying to make it for everyone. Yeah. And I'm, I, I cannot get over the fact that like skateboarding has remained very vibrant because you're just trying to make a certain group of people happy and fuck everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's pretty much it. That's right? skateboarding. Yeah, it is. It, it is pretty much it. <laughs> 
But yeah, I mean, we, uh, that's, but you're saying all that travel, all that stuff at young age, you know, it's like, like the best education, traveling and learning different cultures and understanding what people think and different places and why and what, and trying different food, like just being out of your element. That's why you guys are like, you learn so much and yeah, you become much more. You guys are the best feeders out there, you know, you guys know where the food's at too, globally. That's people don't realize that something I've learned definitely (laughs) in my older age. Yeah. Oh, anyway, we, we got to, they got to tell us we got to end this, but I, I, you know, we started off with uh, the drinking, but I I wanted to make that full circle. It's not just like random nights of having fun, like accumulation of nights like that teach you a fucking lot of shit. Yeah. That too. You learn how to not act up. Oh, I acted up that night. I got my ass kicked or something. Yep. Yeah. Don't do that again. You know, well, it's funny that people <laughs> like, might say that, like, oh, that's just a night out that's random and dumb. You wasted time. Like, yeah. I actually don't believe that at all. Yeah. No, no. If you look at it just one night, maybe. But if you, <laughs> yeah, over but a still, of time, like, there's going to be a, there's a good memory, something, you know? Yeah. There's fun tossers. I mean, yeah, you know what's weird is because I'm not, I'm not a skater, but like, when I've been around with you and there are people that they're like, oh my God. You're hanging out with Eric Costin? Holy fucking shit. He's like the fucking crowd in skateboarding. It's it's like, it's amazing to see that and how people can feel that and how you've been able to be relevant over all these years. Ultimately, just being you too, right? Like, that's fucking rad. Yeah. I <laughs> know. You know? It's been a good, can't complain. No complaints. Pretty good, good job to have for sure, you know? Good job. I've- let your children become skateboarders. <laughs> cool. Well, that was my conversation with Eric Costin. Started out rambling. I think we finished strong. Uh, thank you to Uber Eats for allowing us to do these great podcasts. Thank you, listeners, for supporting us. Give us five stars, however you rate this podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, you name it. Um, I'm back in New York. I just got back from the Masters. You should be able to see something in the next couple of days that we we worked on, and I'm going to get back to the Masters to actually see the round on, on Friday and Saturday. I got a hall pass to do this for work. So thank you to my wife for letting me do something that was technically work, but also incredible. And I was down in Augusta, Georgia at the Masters. I don't even know how it happened, quite frankly, but I was there for uh, Sunday, Monday. I didn't get to see the women's amateur round, which I've been told is one of the great rounds of golf that's ever been played. And it was something that everyone uh, on the grounds were still talking about. But I had sort of insider access and um, excited for you guys to see the footage when we release it. I'm not sure when, but it should happen during the the, the actual tournament itself. It begins tomorrow, today, which is going to air, so Thursday. But... I have so much to say about the Masters. But the one thing I will talk about, besides the food and besides the greens and the beauty of it all and the pageantry and the tradition, wow, the, it's just something that I never anticipated to be as awesome as it was. It's really one of the great sporting events, if not the best sporting event you could go to. And I'm not even sure why, but I have to unpack it all. But the one thing I wanted to talk about at the Masters is the fact that there's no cell phones. It is very strict. 
If you whip out a cell phone, you will be removed from the properties and you will be banned forever. And it's amazing how Augusta National has been able to become iconoclastic by sort of listening to their own rules and doing what they do. And one of the things that they've learned is to not allow modern technology on the golf course from fans. It is the best behaved fans I've ever seen, the best dressed fans I've ever seen. And amazingly, with $2 beers, they're just not like crazy drunk. And it's about getting the experience, right? Not everyone gets to go. The the tickets are expensive and you can't just get them because it's a lottery system. And there's a lot of sort of barriers of entry to begin with, but I've never seen like 30,000 people on their best behavior. It's like we were all going to church with our grandma and we're going to get dinner right after service. It was that kind of can't screw this up, got to gotta be on my best behavior. No running, no, no doing anything out of the norm. And again, like part of the, the charm about Augusta is maintaining this tradition that's gone all the way back to the beginnings with Bobby Locke who was an amateur and helped uh, design Augusta National. So without talking too much about golf and how this might relate to actual food and cooking is the fact that they refuse cell phones. There's no photos, nothing. You can take photos on real cameras, but they have to be like a real camera, not on a cell phone. So they're forbidden. And I got to tell you, I know Bill Simmons talked about this uh, last year when he went down with his father, the lack of communication. It's its really hard to get around to meet people. You know, that's one thing that I forgot about. Like, that's how I used to grow up. Like, hey, meet next to that hill, next to that tree, uh, in, and so on and so forth at three o'clock. And you just did it. And you found that getting around and meeting with people was almost impossible. But you know what? I wonder what it must have been like. Were we this impatient, like pre-cell phone technology? Like, I, I don't think so. We just made it happen, especially if you're going to meet your friends. Like, you just made it happen. And the other thing that relates to, to restaurants is more and more people are trying to have the discussion. Do we have a discussion with the guests to encourage them to remove their cell phones from the tables? You know, like I know some comedy shows or if you go to a movie premiere and they want to like protect the content, they make you put your phone into a pouch and you can pick it up when you leave. And again, like it was so refreshing I would say like 70% of the people must have loved, I think, loved not having a phone. I did. And it almost caused you to be in the moment. It made you like smell the flowers and appreciate the beauty of the course and the deliciousness of a pimento cheese sandwich and the beer that you're sharing with your friend. And to be in the moment, to have this intimacy with your friends or, or yourself or just to be in like a manicured part of nature, right? Like for one, obviously I think there's too many golf courses in the world, but like this is the one exception, right? Like it's stunning. And I think we need more of that. I do. And I wonder how we can do that in restaurants. I was a a big proponent of not having cameras when we opened up Momofuku Co. in 2008 because then we still didn't have cell phone technology that allowed you to have cameras. People were still setting up giant cameras and interrupting the dining experience by flashes. And, and it was almost like a photo, like a shoot with food. And it was a 12-seat restaurant. So we just banned it because, like, it was annoying. And I am one that takes photos of everything now, right? Like, I do it to sort of remember, not to like show anyone. And 
well, that's not true. I show it on Instagram or something like that. But how do you get back to a dining experience where you are enjoying the food and having conversation with your friends? I'm not doing a good job of explaining what it feels like to be an Augusta National without a cell phone. It forces you to be present. And I love that. And, you know, I'm really debating, like, how do you, how do you do that? How do you bring that back to a restaurant without feeling like you're prohibiting or you're, you're taking away sort of civil liberties of someone, right? Or sounding like this restaurant is too self-important, right? Like that's, that's really the risk you, you have to weigh of trying to ensure great customer experience. First of all, you have to deliver on it. But secondly, like the customer may not want them. The customer might have joy taking photos. So like, I don't have an answer to that. All I want to start to have a better discussion on is how do we go back to a dining experience where there's no photos of the food and no one's whipping out their phone to check an email? And nostalgia is a funny fucking thing because I'm wondering, was dining better back then, even if the food wasn't better? Because I think eating today is better than ever before. But like, were dining experiences better because you were in the moment with another person, right? And you had to sort of appreciate everything that was there. There was no way out. So that's my two cents. That was it. I, I've talked way too much. Give us five stars on however you rate this. Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Thank you again for your support and stay tuned next week. Appreciate it, guys. Peace. Peace.